Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us yet again for another episode of The Last Defense. Now, here are your hosts, Hanun Avi and Michael Belowski. Now, we have a very special treat for you. We have on our very first interview and very first special guest, Dr. Webster Griffin Tarpley. Now, just to go into some of the things that he's done and who he is, I'd like to go over just a few of his credentials. He became uh, widely known for his book, George Bush, The Unauthorized Biography, Obama, The Postmodern Coup, The Making of a Manchurian Candidate, and Barack H. Obama, The Unauthorized Biography. He's also written Surviving the Cataclysm, Your Guide Through the Worst Financial Crisis in Human History Against Oligarchy. He's also a graduate of Princeton with his BA in 1966, graduating summa cum laude and Phi Beta Kappa. He's a Fulbright Scholar at the University of Turin, Italy, graduated with his Master's in Humanities from Skidmore College, and his PhD in Early Modern History from the Catholic University of America. He also is the host of the show World Crisis Radio, which you can find at www.tarpley.net. Again, that is Tarpley, T-A-R-P-L-E-Y dot net. The Last Defense gives Dr. Tarpley a warm welcome, and Michael, take it away. You have the floor. All right, well, I guess we'll get right into it. Since, um, time is short. We're, we're going to talk about Greece. Um, as most of us listening probably know, Syriza, the anti-austerity uh, party of Greece, lost the election by a slim margin, like 2 or 3% to the democratic left. And before we get into those details, I, I was hoping, um, Dr. Tarpley, if you could briefly summarize what happened in Greece from the, from the beginning, like just a sort of a, a Joe Sixpacks uh, layman summary. You know, the television tries to tell us that the Greeks are lazy and they're sip, sitting around sipping wine all day, not working. Um, obviously, that wasn't the case. C can you explain how derivatives played a role in that? Let me first ask you, can you hear me? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, wonderful. That's good. Fine. Um, yes. Uh, well, we actually have to go back then to the beginning of the uh, world economic crisis, right? The current world economic depression. And I want to stress that because many people, including economists, are only realizing now that there's a world economic depression. That would include some of the more famous ones like Paul Krugman, who's got a book out now. Stop this depression now. It's good that he has it out now, but he should have had it out uh, four or even five years ago when it was evident that a depression was incoming. Anyway, in a nutshell, the depression started in the British banks and in the U.S. banks. It started in places like uh, Northern Rock and uh, Lloyds Bank and Royal Bank of Scotland on the British side. And of course, simultaneously, it was starting in Bear Stearns, Lehman Brothers, and all of Wall Street uh, on the other. And the, the, the crisis began to become evident in 2007. It exploded in, in uh, March of 2008 with the Bear Stearns bankruptcy. And um, actually, even, even in the, the autumn of 2007, you'd had Northern Rock blowing up, Countrywide Bank blowing up, uh, other British and U.S. banks on the on the brink of um, insolvency. So what the approach was uh, by the uh, U.S. authorities, the Federal Reserve in particular, also by the British, was uh, after some sort of uh, delay on the part of the British, the U.S. was very quick 
to bail these banks out. And that meant uh, $700 billion of public funds from the Treasury and a credit line of about $26 or $27 trillion from the Federal Reserve to uh, to banks both in the United States, in Britain, and, and even elsewhere. The cause of this crisis is derivatives. This has to be stressed. Not subprime housing, not anything other than derivatives. That means collateralized debt obligations, credit default swaps, um, structured investment vehicles. These new exotic instruments that had been illegal in the United States from 1936 to 1982 under the Commodities Exchange Act, then legalized by Reagan, still considered very fishy uh, until they were then uh, deregulated by Clinton uh, in the lame duck session uh, in the year 2000. So that, that meant that the derivatives were back with a vengeance. And sure enough, from 2000 to 2006, 2007, when the crisis began to hit, it's derivatives that have caused the, fa the, the depression to become what it is. Otherwise, you know, how subprime housing is chicken feed. It's peanuts. It can't, it can't generate the, the size of losses that we have. So what the, the U.S. authorities then tried to do was to flood their system with cash, right? Liquidity, as we just said, right? The, almost a trillion of, pub, of public funds from the Treasury and then this credit line of, of 27 trillion from, from the Federal Reserve. But what they found then with that was in 2008, 2009, 2010, that this was beginning to drag down the dollar because you're generating all those dollars and they're sloshing around the markets and therefore they, they begin to... Uh, you know, have the dollar go lower and lower compared to the euro. And since a lot of people hold dollars, they get very nervous about this, right? The Chinese very foolishly bought and held large amounts of U.S. Treasury securities. They should not have done that. They should have invested in uh, capital goods and uh, infrastructure improvement and doing something for, you know, about 500 million Chinese in the interior of their country who are in, in, still in, in pretty um, rough economic conditions. But anyway, the dollar began to go down. So already uh, by the end of uh, 2009, you had a crisis in um, in one of the, the Gulf states, Dubai, I think it was. But by the beginning of, of 2010, you could see what the what the uh, what the strategy was. Christina Romer of the Obama administration had done a study of flight capital from Europe to the United States in the 1930s, and she concluded from this, I think, wrong-headed study, flawed study that the U.S. Uh, had been able to mitigate the depression to some extent because a lot of uh, flight capital had come across from Europe. So anyway, they therefore decided, let's try to export the British-U.S. depression to continental Europe. Let's try to dump it in their laps. Let's try a strategy of beggar my neighbor. And beggar my neighbor is the term that was thought up in the in the 1930s for the strategy actually pursued by the labor government in Britain of Ramsay MacDonald, who tried to dump the depression on everybody else. And this time around, the chosen method is to attack sovereign debt. But you have to see why. Uh, the goal was to smash the euro, smash the euro, use the proceeds of the looting to prop up the dollar, prop up the pound. That's the es essential concept. There really is no Europe, Euro, Euro crisis. There is no European economic crisis. This is a, a crisis which has been generated through a series of economic warfare attacks 
It's not a market event. It's a it's an economic attack. It's strategic, in other words. And the, the reason they had to do it this way is the following. You can't attack the euro frontally. Uh, it's a trillion dollars a day of turnover, right? Even the biggest zombie bank backed up by a wolf pack of, of hedge fund hyenas would have a hard time doing anything to move the needle on that. Right? You can't you can't bid it up or down with your own resources, no matter how many you know times you're leveraged, right? How many thousand percent of leverage you can get. So you, what you got to do is find a weak spot. And the weak spot they found is, well, there are these smaller European countries that have government bonds, the government bonds of Greece, of Spain, of Portugal, of Ireland, and then after that, Italy, Spain. So they said, let's attack the government bonds of these smaller southern European countries. These markets are narrow. They're not heavily traded. They're not very liquid. A small amount of attack can go a long way. And they said, we'll multiply the destructive power of our attack by using credit default swaps, right, which are these exotic derivatives, once again, traded primarily in London. And they are a way of placing a bet on an outcome. Now, it used to be that in order to buy insurance on anything, you had to have an insurable interest. In other words, you couldn't just buy an insurance policy on somebody's life. You had to be a relative, right? You had to somehow be, be touched by, by the outcome. So you were insuring yourself against the loss. But in this case, they call it insurance. Uh, well, if you're issuing credit default swaps and they're insurance, then you should be forced to meet the capital requirements and other registration requirements to be an insurance company in the given country. The other thing they say is, well, it's just betting, right? It's just it's just gambling. Well, in that case, you should be subjected to the gambling laws, right? Are you a registered casino? Are you, uh, you know, a legal, uh, you know, uh, place of uh, gambling, right? Are you Las Vegas? Are you Atlantic City or Monaco or or whatever you are? So the attack then followed, right? And they picked the weak ones first. So you take the countries that have, uh, you know, weak financial condition, you attack them. So they start with Greece and so forth. Now, the uh, the idea is that once you see that you're being attacked with credit default swaps, the, the answer to that ought to be easy. Outlaw credit default swaps. We don't need them. They, they play no useful role. Uh, credit default swaps are the ones that destroyed AIG, and they have occasioned hundreds and hundreds of millions of direct losses to U.S. taxpayers. They should have been outlawed here before, but they, they weren't. And then we get to the moment of truth. Now, if a, if a bank lends money to a country and the country declares a debt moratorium or a debt freeze, it's too bad for the bank. The bank made a bad investment decision. They can eat their losses. They could go bankrupt. But given the neoliberal lunatic consensus of the European uh, Commission, the European oligarchy, the Eurogarchs, as we call them, the people like like uh, Ali Rain and Barroso and Van Rompuy and uh, Madame Lagarde of the IMF and so forth, they fundamentally believe that uh, – Banks are sacred, they're sacrosanct, they're too big to fail, they've got to be defended at all costs. So they say better the, 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 the government should go bankrupt. And this is the fundamental dilemma of our time. Either the national governments today will put the banking systems into bankruptcy and liquidate them and destroy their derivatives and reorganize them and wipe out the rest, or 
the banking system will uh, attempt to, to tear down the governments and destroy them. And that is what is happening to some extent in in Europe. And it's also happening with the help of these credit agencies, right? Moody's, Fitch, Standard & Poor's. These are extremely corrupt, extremely unreliable agencies that are used really for intelligence purposes, right? Their, their attacks are timed. And uh, happily, we can say that a very courageous Italian investigative judge Michele Ruggiero has been uh, requesting indictments against five uh, principles of uh, Standard & Poor's for spreading false information and for attempting to destabilize uh, Italy by attempted market manipulation. These are crimes. These are felonies under Italian law. So we're hoping that will that will go forward. Now, obviously, the banks will will try to counterattack that and, and put it uh, put it to a stop. So. The uh, the outcome of this was that Greece was pitched into this crisis, and the question then became, what would they do? Would they declare a debt freeze, right? Debt moratorium. That's been done by Mexico, by Brazil, by Argentina. Uh, there's even a moment in the in the Great Depression in in June of 1931. Herbert Hoover, president of the United States, said, "Let's have a debt freeze on." Reparations by Germany to England, France, and let's have a, a debt freeze on war debts from England and France to the United States, the most dangerous types of international debt. The equivalent today would be to say, as I say, let's have a freeze on all derivatives debt. Anything that has to do with derivatives, financial derivatives, credit derivatives, freeze it with a view to, uh, to wiping out some of it. And perhaps you can get around to paying some of it back in the future. I wouldn't be very optimistic about that. But instead, under neoliberal auspices, this became a problem of the governments. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. We don't dare do anything that would offend the markets. Well, the markets, there are no markets. The markets are a gang of thieves who are using, uh, you know, these credit default swaps to attack you. That is where the crisis is located, the located in this in this derivatives exchange in London. So uh, that, that's where, where the Greek problem got going. So what they tried to do then under, uh, interestingly, under socialist auspices, right? This guy calling himself uh, a socialist, right? Papandreou of the Socialist International. Socialist International, by the way, means CIA and Soros. That's, that's it in a nutshell. So what he did, uh, uh, Papandreou, was he was able to stay in power for really the best part of two years. He was able to survive what, 15 general strikes, because the demands of the general strikes never included down with Papandreou. He imposed austerity. Uh, he cut the living standard. Well, he, he agreed to programs that will cut the living standard by about 25%. But the result of that, of course, is what the result of, of um, austerity always is in a depression. Uh, in a depression, everything depends on keeping the government budget going at the very minimum, uh, because that's where most economic activity is located. A job is a job is a job. And uh, the, the government does absolutely create uh, jobs. So you need to increase your uh, your counter-cyclical payments, right? You got to keep your welfare payments high. You got to keep your government payrolls intact so that you've at least got a baseline to start from. Uh, if you cut that, which is what was done in Greece, right? Cut the pensions, cut government employment, cut wages, lower the minimum wage, do all these crazy sort of neoliberal to Austrian to Chicago boys things, 
Then what do you get? Your, your general level of ec ec economic activity goes down. Unemployment goes up. Those people stop paying taxes. They become welfare victims. Uh, you get the idea, right? You're essentially cutting your own throat, you know, in the elusive pursuit of this balanced budget, which, of course, you'll, you'll never get. You'll never balance the budget with these things. And that is what we've seen in, in Greece. As the uh, budget and the, over, uh, the overall government spending has been cut by about, well, let's say as the uh, living standard of the population has been shrunk by about one quarter, You've had the total uh, debt, right, the existing national debt go from 130 percent of gross domestic product per year to uh, about 170 percent. So the result is austerity makes things worse. You cut the budget today. You increase the deficit tomorrow. And then you get into a death spiral where you get another round of cuts and another and another. You're destroying your labor power. You're destroying your next generation. Smart young people flee the country thinking they can do better somewhere else. So that's where, where we are now in, in, uh, in Greece. And just one last thing. The, the moment when Papandreou fell is an interesting one. Papandreou did not want to accept the full responsibility for the last uh, round of austerity cuts, killer cuts, genocidal cuts, I would say, to be sure. Uh, he he wanted to have a referendum. And naturally, the, the, the Greek people would have easily voted against austerity. So the IMF said, what are you, crazy? And they organized a coup d'etat to get rid of him. So that was the end of Papandreou. And then we've had some short-lived uh, technocratic governments and uh, and other things. So we get, we then get to the uh, to the election. So does that set the stage? Mm -hmm. OK, and, and while you were saying some of that, I was Looking at uh, – I couldn't find the six-point program. I found a 40-point program for Syriza on greenvillepost.com, and a lot of these points match up with what you were saying as solutions. Yeah, uh, let me just – I can, I can tell you what the five points are. It's easy. Okay. It's the five points that they, they put out for the second round of these elections. So what we just had, the first major election, the first election where the – the choices were clear, was at the beginning of May. All right? So what do you have? PASOK, that's the so-called socialist, right? that's Papandreou party, now run by this huge fat guy, Venezuelos, right? looks like Hermann Goering. So that's, that, and they were, they were the ones who were the face of austerity. So they, they, they have collapsed. Uh, they were about a third of their former strength, though, I think. And then you've got new democracy, and new democracy are... are uh, they're reactionaries, but reactionaries, some of them are reactionaries light. In other words, they they don't want you to see how reactionary they are. Uh, and, and what they do, uh, the one area where it's clear is this racism, right, that they they hate foreign workers. They hate Macedonia, right, this former Yugoslav uh, republic, which is on their northern border. They have a lot of typically right-wing nationalistic, well, not even nationally, racist uh, hatreds against uh, against others. And then uh, the, the new thing, on the new kid on the block is Syriza, right, which is this block of 12 smaller parties, organizations, sects, which were brought together. Now, this is where you got to look at how to do it. Uh, you can learn a lot from Syriza, right? You've got to have a, a unity front of these contending squabbling groups and try to bring them together 
you've got to have a leader that turned out to be Alexis Tsipras, who I think has you know, established himself as the the most capable leader of, of um, anti-banker forces in Europe. Then you've got to have uh, a program. And the program that they came up with was, first of all, roll back austerity. Uh, if there were wage cuts, they have to be dis- restored. If there were pension cuts, they have to be restored. If government workers were fired, they've got to be rehired. Teachers, policemen, firemen, the, the, the essential components of civilization have got to be restored. Secondly, if there have been anti-worker or anti-union measures, union-busting measures, they've got to be rolled back. That would be good for you know, Wisconsin or, or, uh, or uh, Indiana here in the United States where we've had – sort of quasi-fascist union union busting Republican regimes that have uh, you know tried to shut down trade unions in general. Third point is uh, a number of things which are mainly of domestic uh, social interest which have to do with democratization of everyday life, social justice in everyday life. Fourth point is investigate this entire crisis and where you find felonies committed by bankers, jail the bankers, put them in jail. And let that stand as an example to other bankers that you don't get away with everything. Um, contrast that here to the United States, where really nobody still so far uh, has been um, put in jail for the great crisis of 0708. Some people have been they, they've gotten a couple of people now for um, insider trading, but that's really not a separate kind of uh, issue. And then the fifth one, which interests me a lot, is is the most radical point which is debt freeze, debt moratorium. If there are parts of the Greek national debt that are resulting from from criminal activity or uh, which are considered too onerous, which are just too much for the Greek people to pay, then freeze them. Again, it's what about 25, 30 countries have done, some very big and successful ones, right? Argentina, Mexico, Brazil. Argentina is a very successful country these days. They got where they are thanks to a debt freeze, which allowed them to cancel about half of their debt. In the case of Greece, we've had a, a little haircut, which has actually made things worse because of the way that it was uh, that it was done. So those are the five points, and you got you fight on that basis. Now it's interesting that we just had Occupy Wall Street here, run by anarchists, right? Run by these very fishy, uh, spooky anarchists from Adbusters of Vancouver, British Columbia. And they, these anarchists from the Situationist International, they tell you, you should not have a leader. You should not have a program. You should not have an organization. You should not have a strategy. You shouldn't have anything. <coughs> and interesting, interestingly enough, then uh, the uh, this uh, group of, uh, of Occupy Wall Street have ob- obtained absolutely nothing. They got nothing. They got nobody going to Congress. They said, oh, we changed the conversation. Yeah, the conversation is always changing. And since then, the conversation has moved on. We're on the verge of a fascist uh, offensive here in the U.S. So uh, compared to the Tea Party even of the previous year, this Occupy Wall Street was absolutely pathetic because they never had an idea that they wanted to take power or a piece of power, which Syriza obviously did. So in the first round, Syriza got about 17 percent of the vote. In the second round, they got about 27 percent of the vote. I wouldn't say they lost the election. They they are big winners in the election. Uh, they just happened to come in about two and a half percent short of this new democracy reactionary racist 
uh, operation. Uh, and those two points, unfortunately, with the Greek system, if you come in first, right, if you have more votes than anybody else, you get 50, five zero extra members of parliament. So that's that is what has helped uh, new democracy. But right now you've got a, you're going to have a government where new democracy is the face of the government. And they they're you know, saying they're going to continue with austerity more slowly, but austerity. So that means they'll be prolonging the agony. And this once you have about. I would say six months or so of the new democracy with PASOK, right, with the socialists. Amazing, right? The right wingers and the left wingers supposedly get together. And what you see is that they were the parties of the bankers the whole time. And then something called the independent left, who are just a bunch of frauds. These are left wing fakers who say, oh, we want to make it so that it's not so bad on the workers. Well, let's see how far they get with that. If this third party drops out, that will be the beginning, the signal of the beginning of the end of this governing coalition. So I would say this governing coalition might go on until November, December. Let's let's call it that. In other words, by the end of the year, I would predict that government will either be gone or it will be evidently in crisis and about to fall. And that's when Syriza can come in and uh, and become the number one party and then form a government because austerity doesn't work. It's physically impossible to pay this debt. Greece will never pay that debt. That cannot be done in this world. In this universe, constituted the way we know it to be, you can't do it. So you're prolonging the agony. Uh, there will be some concessions from the European Union to, to try to help new democracy stay in power because that's what they want. The bankers will, at least the, the IMF, will try to be a little bit reasonable, I think. If they don't, then the crisis will go, will go even faster. Uh, but at the end of the day, it's going to be Syriza saying we have a principled position. This is strategy, right? Never join an austerity government. Never, never, never associate yourself with killer genocidal austerity against your own people. And eventually you will prevail. Hmm. Yeah, very so, uh, interesting insights. <laughs> oh, go ahead. Yep. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, sorry. Um, I wanted to ask you a quick question, doc, uh, Dr. Tarpley. I wanted to ask you about um, how you think the general public will react to this. Um, it seems that um, since another pro-austerity candidate has been selected as the, um, you know, the forerunner for the next <coughs> for this election, um, I wanted to ask you how how do you think? First off, um, how do you think that the general public will react to this election? Are we talking Greece still now? Yes. Okay. Um, well, um, the the way in which this was the, the 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 outcome that you see was done by hysterical, panic mongering, fear mongering propaganda, and I must say the libertarian, so the libertarians of the world, right, the Ron Paul sympathizers of the world in a broad sense, eagerly joined in, right, because the. The libertarian mentality is that they want to predict the end of the world, right? And, uh, and of course, the government is always responsible. Uh, in this case, as we've seen, it's the banks that are responsible, and the banks should have eaten the losses, right? They, all these bailouts were really bailouts of the banks. So what we had was inside Greece, there was the demonization of Tsipras and Syriza, which was not easy to do, right? Uh, the, the, the position of, of Syriza, of course, was stay in the euro <clears throat> excuse me stay in the euro 
but reject austerity. And that's the reasonable position. That's the correct position, in my view. The, the euro is like a convoy. You don't want to drop out of the convoy. It's like you're crossing Nazi-infested waters in the North Atlantic, right? The wolf packs are there. You got to stay together with the convoy. The convoy is the euro. If Greeks, if the Greece, Greece drops out of the euro, they go back to the drachma. Here's what happens. The international speculators will drive down the value of the drachma to the point where it's it's practically nothing. They'll drive it towards the center of the earth. That will mean hyperinflation inside Greece. And as we've just seen in uh, in Iceland, uh, the Icelandic currency was cut in half. The Greek currency will be cut down to you know one one hundredth of what it is now after all this propaganda. Uh, that will mean terrible austerity, right? A real humanitarian crisis beyond even what we have. If they, if the Germans get the idea, no serious German, by the way, only petty bourgeois professors would ever entertain this. If you go back to the German mark, the D mark, that would be driven up into intergalactic space. And uh, that would mean that the German export economy would be priced out of the world market, right? Their currency would be so expensive and their costs would be so expensive that their entire export market would be destroyed. So they would then pitch into a deflationary depression. So those are the two choices. If you leave the euro, you can choose between a hyperinflationary depression or a deflationary depression, but you will be destroyed either way. The only, the only uh, answer to this is stay inside the euro, fight to gain control of the European Central Bank, which is what uh, Tsipras did. He went to Paris. He met with Mélenchon of the uh, left front, which got about what, 12, 13 percent in the first round of the presidential elections and have also been competing in the in the legislative elections. Uh, and the goal there was let's have a common front against the European Central Bank. Let's force the European Central Bank to finance infrastructure projects and in the meantime to to defend these bonds. Right. In other words, if if. If hedge fund hyenas are attacking with credit default swaps, then what you do is you have your uh, you'd get support operations from your central bank, which is always going to be much bigger. And you can even do, uh, you know, bear squeezes, right? You can buy huge amounts of Greek bonds and bankrupt the people that are spec speculating against them and uh, defend uh, the euro that way. Um, he also then went on to Berlin and with with Die Linke in Berlin, uh, uh, left party. I know it's about 10 percent or thereabouts in some elections. Anyway, uh, same idea. I'd right? have a European wide program. So that's essential because it's got to be European wide. They, they obviously need to spread that to all the other countries, right, starting with Italy and Spain. But that, I think, is is important. So Syriza was demonized because they supposedly meant exit from the euro. They don't. And only a fool talks about leaving the euro. Uh, they also said, oh, you'll be thrown out of the euro. Well, that can't be done. There is no mechanism to throw you out of the euro. Oh, then the, the uh, European Central Bank will cut off all your credits. You won't be able to get any euros because those come from the European Central Bank. No, I don't think so, because at the bottom of all this, Madame Merkel, right, the great austerity ghoul of Europe and an austerity fiend of Germany, what is she trying to do? She's she's trying to save Deutsche Bank and the German banking system, Commerzbank, because those zombie banks are the ones that will blow if Greece declares a debt moratorium or, or you know, a complete 
debt cancellation, which is a step beyond, really. So she's trying to keep Greece paying with these methods. The problem is she's she her real loyalty is to the banks, but she's also got a a, a narrow minded uh public which is resentful somehow that they they think their money is being taken for the Greeks their money is not being taken for the Greeks their money is being taken for Deutsche Bank and the other the other German banks but they somehow they can't uh, understand this in some cases so so there's that the other thing when was just fear 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 right if Cyprus and Syriza win it's the end of the world they'll leave the euro the whole world will collapse you saw all this stuff and this was backed up then by um, international exporters right, trying to cut off deliveries of pharmaceuticals to Greece. In other words, everything was done to create an atmosphere of panic and hysteria <clears throat> on the eve of these elections. But still, this right-wing gang only won out by 2.5%. So I think that shows a, uh, a growing awareness of the realities on the part of uh, – of Greece. The the other thing they kept going saying was, oh, the Greeks are taking their money out of banks. The Greeks are taking their money out of banks. There's a panic run on the banks. There was no panic run on the banks. What there was is a continuous process of people taking money out of bank accounts to live on, to to pay expenses. Because if you have that tremendous unemployment that's there and the decline of the standard of living, then uh, you got to take a lot of money out of the bank. Bank deposits will tend to go down fairly rapidly over time. So that's what's been going on. So I, I, what I just see again is a six-month period. Uh, the first uh, move that this uh, Samaras, right, the head of New Democracy, the new prime minister, the first pro-austerity move he makes could well become the occasion for another general strike. And this will be a general strike with – some energy behind it because now these right-wingers are back in power. That makes it easier to mobilize the labor movement. The PASOK socialists, so-called State Department socialists, they're in, in power also, but they, they only have one deputy minister. But it's, so it's mainly a, what you see is a right-wing reactionary and indeed proto-fascist uh, government. Um, I think it's going to be it's going to become easier to mobilize people once they get through the um, demoralization and disorientation of of these elections. Uh, however, there is another factor, right, which is what will the bankers do then? The bankers will subsidize the neo-Nazi party. That's called Chrissy Avni. And they came in with about 7 percent. They're an openly pro-Nazi party. And, uh, you know, if you look at the origins of fascism and Nazism in the 20s and 30s, it's financed by bankers so that you have a goon squad of strike breakers and, and um, you know, uh, thugs to mobilize, to break strikes and to otherwise, you know, smash up um, newspapers and p political meetings that the bankers don't like. So there, there will be that, too. Chrissy Avni, the Golden Dawn, even the name is drawn from British intelligence, who – the British, of course, were really the colonial power controlling Greece from the time of Lord Byron, right? Ypsilanti's rebellion in the 1820s until, well, until now, they're still there. But certainly until, until um, you know, the, the, the uh, 1990 or so. Okay, wonderful. Um, now, Mike, do you have any other questions? Yeah, I was just thinking 
popped in my head. Our, our friend Eric Dreitzer from StopImperialism.com mentioned that there was almost 20% of the vote left uncounted when they declared the, the left democracy, new democracy, was it democracy left? Uh, new democracy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When they were called the victory, there was still 18% of the votes uncounted. <laughs> I, I was just uh, to, to ask, uh, uh, frankly, do you think they just stole the election or is it just uh, too much propaganda on the Greek people? Sure. I, as I told them in advance uh, before the fact, uh, you've got to expect to get what Italy got in 1948, right? the famous uh, Italian elections of May 1948, which was basically – are you going to go with the Soviets? Are you going to go with the U.S.? And huge hysteria and uh, and vote fraud. So, yeah, I'm sure whatever NATO could do in the way of vote, vote fraud, they did. Um, it's just, uh, you know, that's sort of baked in the cake. That's that's the way it is. Elections yeah. are, are frauds, right? Uh, in many cases, um, an honest vote count is, is hard to get. Um, so, yeah, but that doesn't. That doesn't change anything, right? Your task is still the same, right? And your and your 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 agitation is not to whine about vote fraud. Your agitation is to say five points, right? Roll back austerity, stop anti-union measures, social justice, jail fel felon bankers, and debt freeze, right? And that's the most powerful medicine against these things. And ultimately, once you win by twenty percent, in reality, they'll show you as winning by three percent on their on their vote count. Also, your friend uh, or your correspondent in Greece, Michael, I had his name on the top of my head before. Chiotinis. Yeah. He said in your latest podcast or in your latest radio show that there seems – and I think you already talked about this a little bit, but there seems to be already austerity. He talked about um, pharmacies not having their medicine ready for customers, and it sounds, sounds like austerity is already – Hitting. Yeah, but Mike, yeah, that's exactly right. The, the, the living standard has been cut, has been cut by one quarter. 25% has been lopped off the living standard, which was not high, right? And most of this, this garbage you hear, Greeks are lazy, Greeks retire early, Greeks go home at uh, 2 o'clock in the afternoon, uh, Greeks have a short working day. This is pure racist propaganda, right? This is absolute you know, it's the usual divide and conquer garbage that you hear from bankers and from their uh, minions. So the living standard has been cut. The suicides are occurring now. And again, for people maybe listening in the U.S., compare this to Ron Paul and his genocidal proposal to cut $1 trillion out of the U.S. federal budget. Now, the Ron Paul cuts would be comparable to the 25 percent cut in the standard of living of the Greek people that we've that we've already had. Uh, and in particular, Ron Paul targets a group of about 50 million people who have uh, no job. They have no welfare payments. Right. Thanks to Clinton, since Clinton abolished child and mother uh, payments, welfare payments uh, under the Social Security Act back in, in the mid 90s. So no job, no welfare no health care and no uh, no visible means of support except food stamps. Ron Paul, the reactionary beast, wants to cut two thirds off the food stamp budget. So instead of having a dollar fifty or a dollar sixty to spend per person per meal, 
your cost per meal would have to go down to a little bit over 50 cents, which is simply a recipe for rickets, pellagra, scurvy, uh, protein deficiencies, cognitive impairment, early death, and so forth. And this is where you can see the fascist essence of the Austrian school. You're talking about cuts that will kill people. But since it's this little leprechaun who comes in and spouts this crap in his garb, you know, sort of uh, avuncular style, it, it seems like it's 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 it can be discussed. And instead of saying Nazi go home, people are saying, oh, oh, you want to cut two thirds? Well, wouldn't cut wouldn't cutting half be enough? Or maybe we should cut three quarters or something like this. In other words, people have undergone a real moral and intellectual degeneration. As a result of this stuff. So uh, that that is and that's that's what's going on over the world. And and right now I would I would warn right where we were expecting the Supreme Court today to begin a fascist offensive here. In other words, what's going to happen here is you've got all the reactionary ducks lined up. You've got the Federal Reserve, the majority of the Supreme Court. That's the Ratzkabal, the uh, Roberts, Alito, Thomas Scalia plus Kennedy. You've got the uh, Bilderberg group has has weighed in on this. You've got. Uh, <clears throat> the Congress talking about a grand bargain of huge cuts, right? Cutting something on the scale of what Ron Paul is talking about, although not quite that much initially. Um, you, you're, you're getting towards a situation where with the Romney campaign, right, with the ruling class strongly supporting Romney and, and moving to dump Obama, you can see how all of these things come together in a perfect storm where you're going to be stripped of your whatever claim on health care you have. They'll strip you of your New Deal economic rights, your Great Society economic rights, the New Frontier uh, policies, the, maybe the, even the, uh, the, uh, the Civil Rights Act of 1964, something like this. Um, all of this coming together, you'll have no unemployment benefits. You'll have uh, no chance to go to college. There'll be no, no Pell Grants, no payments. There'll be no child labor laws if some of these lunatics get their way. In other words, a return to a Dickensian nightmare of uh, authoritarianism where workers have no rights and they're simply trampled on, right? It's going to look something like Fr France under the Ancien Regime, right, where the nobility pays no taxes and the peasantry is crushed under their boot, Right. That's that's essentially where we're uh, headed. Now, there will be countervailing forces. Right. This is the program maximum of these of these reactionaries and fascists. But that's that's sort of the idea. And Ron Paul has really been the ideological point man for this entire thing. So I think that the situation is very bad. Four years ago, I warned Obama is the new Carter. Uh, Obama will wreck the moment. Right. You, we had a moment in 19 in 2008 where the Republican Party, with the right leadership in the Republican in the Democratic Party, the, the the Republican Party could have been completely destroyed. It could have been reduced to a small regional party in the deep south, working primarily on racist themes, kind of like Ron Paul. Um, but that was not done. Right. O Obama did everything he could to, to abort the moment, right, to demoralize, to uh, you know, to disillusion people, to mislead them, right? He he never proposed a fighting program. Right? The obvious thing for healthcare would have been Medicare for everybody. Doesn't matter how old you are, you can get Medicare, hundred dollars a month per person. If you can't pay it, then uh, then it'll be free, right? If you're destitute or unemployed, 
But no, we had to have all the, the individual mandate and all this stuff, which I believe it is constitutional, but uh, policy-wise, it's terrible, right? Not everything that's constitutional is what you want. There's all kinds of crimes that the Constitution does not uh, prohibit. So uh, Obama did these things. We could have had serious regulation of Wall Street. Instead, we got this Dodd-Frank bill, which is a bad joke. And now we've got J.P. Morgan and the London Whale to show how ineffective all that was. Anyway, that moment was was completely aborted by this Obama, right, with his messianic utopian rhetoric. He's the new Carter. And now we have the hangover. And if you go back and look what happened after Carter, you went into a reactionary nightmare of Reagan, Reagan, Bush. And that lasted for the best part of a generation. And the whole political system was moved massively to the right, right, massively in a reactionary direction. And I would say that's what is threatening to happen now. Uh, we just had the Wisconsin recall effort fall short, again, because Obama uh, betrayed them, stabbed them in the back, wouldn't do anything to get rid of this union-busting governor in, in Wisconsin. And um, similarly, right, so we, 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 I think it, it's the, the signs are against Obama, and that means Romney. Now, Romney is going to be a very narrow-based government. Right? People tell you about Syria and how it's bad to have a government based on Alawites. I think that's, that's much exaggerated. But what you're going to see here is a government, I would say, it'll have two sides. Uh, Romney will have the foreign policy run once again by neocons, and that will be uh, Bolton and Kagan and Robert Joseph and other neocons that have joined his campaign. Domestic policy will be run by Mormons like Romney, Huntsman, uh, and this guy Levitt, right? The governor, the former governor of um, Utah, who's going to be the transition boss. He's going to pick all the people for the plum jobs, I think, on the domestic front. So you'll have a very narrow uh, based government. But that's the kind of government you want to have when you're going to engage in savage, brutal austerity cuts, because there you're going to have some powerful interests that are going to be crushed in the process, right? Not just the little people, but some of the rather big people are going to take it uh, on the chin. <coughs> so uh, do you think there's a possibility that, um, if assuming Romney gets in, that he, he could also be a lame duck on arrival because I just don't see any enthusiasm. Like when Obama came around, he was like the new big thing, you know, change, hope, and all that good stuff. But I don't see any Romney support. I don't see any Obama support either. I think that either way, it's going to be a lame duck on arrival. Um, could that affect the I way think they? I would not. I would not uh, take comfort in that for one minute. Um, look at look at G. W. Bush. G.W. Bush was a lame duck. He was a minority president. Everybody knew he'd gotten less than half of the uh, of the votes cast. My God. And nevertheless, he attempted, uh, you know, a, a war policy and his own version of a uh, of a domestic uh, policy. Right. Which was um, primarily the stuff with the tax cuts for the rich. Right. At the mo at the moment that he faced. Right. The, the austerity cuts were not the main thing, although he did that, too. So, no, I'm afraid not. Once you get the presidency, you have some power. And that's uh, the idea. That's, it's, and it's more yeah. than the presidency. It's how do you get Federal Reserve, Supreme Court, Congress, presidency, uh, banking elite, Bilderberg types. How do you get that all in a row, all going in the same direction? And I think Romney will <coughs> will largely have that. So I think uh, 
it's time to uh, to mobilize against it. And the main thing for people to understand is if you ever had any sympathy for Ron Paul and that one trillion dollars of savage genocidal cuts against the American people, you've got to search your conscience and ask yourself, how could you be so depraved? How could you be such a sucker? How could you ever fall for any of that garbage? Especially now that Ron Paul has revealed through his little son Rand and the nepotism that he's, uh, you know, he's an auxiliary of the Romney campaign. Couldn't be clearer. And that will become more clear as time goes on. That's all he ever was. A way to get Romney to the nomination, even though Romney is a very weak candidate. Well, George H.W. Bush, for example, shows that a very weak candidate can eventually get to the presidency <clears throat> if he's got enough money, media and organizational backing. They can fix it right? using these stalking horses. Right. We had with Romney. We had Huntsman as a left wing stalking horse. We had Ron Paul as a right wing stalking horse. And eventually uh, you can you can get to that point. And now now that uh, that Romney has taken the lead in terms of money, you can see how this uh, may well play out. And Obama continues to betray and demoralize his own base, stab them in the back, as in Wisconsin. That's a big defeat for Obama. A lot of unionists said to Obama, if you don't come out for us in Wisconsin, we will not come out for you in November. And Obama didn't do it because Obama's obsessed with this group of fussy independents, right? The so-called people in the middle. That's who he wants to pander to. Well, unfortunately, you can't win elections there. Those independents are mainly looking to see which side is stronger, who's going to prevail, and they'll they'll go with that. So uh, that's the story with Obama. It's also it's ironic because Obama had made a speech in his election campaign 2007-2008 saying if worker rights are being attacked i will put on my shoes and i'll go out and walk the picket line with you as president except that's exactly the opposite of what he did he never came near a picket line not only did obama not go to wisconsin he didn't send biden he didn't send attorney general eric holder he didn't send hilda solis the secretary of labor he did absolutely nothing for them he could have mobilized the awesome powers of the federal government to crush this little fascist governor, Walker of, of Wisconsin. Walker, by the way, who is a relative of the Bush family, right through, as you know, as you see, George Herbert Walker Bush, George Walker Bush. This is the same breed of Walker, uh, a slightly different uh, branch of this uh, this clan. Hmm. Yeah, um, I wanted to ask you a quick question. Um, you mentioned the Bilderberg Group. And uh, I hope there's enough time for it. Um, you mentioned about how a lot of decisions have been made during the Bilderberg conference this year uh, at the end of before, May. Before, before the conference. The, the decisions are made above and behind the Bilderberg, and the decisions are distributed at the meeting, and they're discussed. Okay. But the decisions are already made. And the, deci the decision on dumping Obama is at least a year old, maybe a year and a half old. Who knows? Okay. Um, <coughs> I wanted you to um, – Talk to us a little bit about the Logan Act. Uh, since these different uh, groups of people from around the world have convened uh, secretly, they have pretty much violated the Logan Act um, as part of the um, laws of the United States government. I wanted you to tell us about the significance of this and how it can be used to you know, bring charge against those who were involved, because apparently um, this could possibly be fodder for the um, American people or for other people involved to – expose these groups and to actually add fire to this 
So I wanted you I, to go into. Um, some I got it. I I think this leads you. This gets you basically nowhere. I think it's a chimera, right? This is this is a favorite for right wingers, right? For uh, Paul Tards, we might say, who um, are looking for a way to deny the obvious. In other words, that Ron Paul is a tool of the Bilderberger group. They they want to somehow uh, cover that up, right? The idea with the Logan Act is you're not allowed to pretend to negotiate in the name of the U.S. government in in relations with foreign states. And God knows there may be uh, you know quite a bit of that going on with Bilderberg, but it's going to be very hard to prove and. Essentially, it, this, in a depression, the average person is going to say, what the hell do I care? I, I need, <clears throat> I need uh, medical care for my family. I need to get rid of this banker who's trying to foreclose on me. I'm trying to get some food stamps this month. I'm trying to survive here. Whether you know, somebody's negotiating in the name of the United States, this is somebody else's problem. The point is, Peter Thiel of the steering committee of the Bilderberger group. Now, he's not just one of these people who comes to Bilderberg for one meeting or two, but he's a part of the hardcore administrative structure of the Bilderberg group. Peter Thiel, the guy who f- co-founded PayPal, is on the Facebook board. He's part of this uh, you know, big scandal about the uh, initial public offering of the Facebook stock with so many little Little people lost a lot of money because they were so gullible they believed in uh, in Facebook. Peter Thiel is part of that. He has contributed $2.7 million to a super PAC supporting Ron Paul. Now, that would be an open and shut case for any rational thinking person. Ron Paul is a tool of the Bilderberger Group, right? $2.7 million. You don't give away that kind of money just uh, on a whim. It has a purpose. What are the, what are the, what's the purpose? Well, one is to spew the ideological poison of Austrianism, libertarianism, and the, all the garbage you hear coming out of Ron Paul's mouth. And then the other side of it is, if you look at the Republican primary, there, Romney's ceiling, as long as Romney had any opposition at all, his ceiling was about 40%. He could get the country club Republicans, but he couldn't get the Sam's Club Republicans. He couldn't get the the uh, less wealthy, less affluent, uh, especially blue collar Republicans. And there are quite a few of those now, given the, the betrayals of the Democratic Party and the backlash against Obama. So that meant that there was 60 percent of the vote that Romney could never get. So at that point, it was indispensable to cut into that possible block of 60 percent. If the 60 percent had been voting for Santorum every time, we would have had the clerical fascist Santorum and not the uh, Mormon um, uh, austerity uh, ghoul uh, Romney coming in. So how do you do that? Well, Ron Paul could take about 10, 12, 15 percent of the Republican vote and simply take them off the table. He would put them in the deep freeze. He would lock them up. Obviously, Ron Paul could never be the Republican nominee, right? Ron Paul's policy If anybody had really known that Ron Paul wants to destroy Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, uh, food stamps and all the other social programs, he would have been typhoid Mary. Nobody except me, to some extent or very few, took the pains to uh, to point these things out. But if if Ron Paul had actually gotten media scrutiny, uh, his vote totals would have fallen even lower. The Democrats didn't do that because they wanted 
they thought Ron Paul was embarrassing the Republicans because he has this this anti-war line that he puts out, which is not serious, right? It's a fraud. He voted for the Afghan war. He voted for the dictatorial measures, right? He, he, he supported this war. He was for the Afghan war before he was against it. He was not a profile in courage. Barbara Lee voted against the war. Ron Paul didn't. He voted for it. So there's one war going on officially now. It's the Afghan war. Ron Paul voted for it. So that's not much of an anti-war candidate in my book. But the, uh, the idea then is um, uh, he spewed the, uh, the poisons. He, he, he locked up the votes. And, uh, and, and now we have, we have this situation where he has allowed Romney to, to get to the nomination. And, of course, it was all done for the sake of little Rand, right? This, this you know, unqualified, uh, spoiled little uh, kid of his, right? And Ron Paul is, uh, is a nepotist, right? He's got 60 people from his family on the congressional office and campaign payrolls. He's taken care of the Paul clan. And the way he wanted to take care of little Rand Paul was to uh, get him the vice presidential nomination. And the scenario for that would have been if Ron Paul could have gotten enough delegates and if Romney didn't get enough to get to the 1144, the half, you know, the absolute majority of the Republican convention, then Ron Paul could have said to Romney, look here, put Rand on the ticket. And with that, I can get all my supporters to vote for you. And it would have worked. I don't know if that's going to happen now because uh, Romney has made it on his own power. Right? He, he doesn't need Ron Paul's uh, delegates. But uh, there's no doubt that that's that's what that's what Ron Paul was up to. So I would say the Logan Act is of uh, very limited interest. It's primarily used by right wingers to to create the impression that they're fighting Bilderberg. They're not. The interesting thing was that the Bilderberger group Inside the Bilderberger group, you had people who wanted Romney plus somebody, right? It could have been Romney plus Mitch Daniels. Maybe that won't be it. Romney plus Rubio, right? The 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 senator from the anti-Castro community, the uh, infamous Gusanos of, of Southern Florida, or some other candidate, right? But that was inside the Bilderberger group. Outside, there were people who were duped in many cases, not knowing it. But they were actually working for Romney and Rand Paul. That was what separated them in many cases from the people inside. And obviously that's embarrassing. So they had to invent this story that there were threats coming against Ron Paul, right? That people were cursing Ron Paul among these rich Bilderberger people. This absolute garbage. Anybody who believes this should uh, should hang it up, right? You should you know, take up stamp collecting or coin collecting and forget about politics. Ron Paul is not being cursed. He's being paid. He's being rewarded with $2.7 million. And I had people sending me emails saying, can I please take Ron Paul's place on the Bilderberger hit list as long as I can get the $2.7 million that he got? Or if the, he was being cursed inside the uh, the Bilderberger, it must have been the waiters and the cleaning ladies, when they found out that Ron Paul wants to take away their unemployment benefits and their food stamps, they started uh, cursing him. Uh, I, I think this this is just um, an, an, an attempt. The Logan Act business is just another way to to try to create the impression that there's some real principal difference between the Ron Paul people and the, and the Bilderberg. And ultimately, there's not. That's the irony. Uh, libertarianism 
from comes from von Hayek and von Mises. Well, both of them were paid by the Rockefeller family, actually paid by David Rockefeller, right? Von Hayek was the tutor of David Rockefeller in economics. He was so dumb he couldn't get through the London School of Economics. He needed a private tutor. That was von Hayek. So von Hayek got paid to shape the views of dumb David Rockefeller. And then von Mises was financed when he came to the United States. Uh, Rockefeller, David, uh, funded him. And he was funding them to spew ideological poisons. And that's the same thing that Ron Paul is doing, thanks to the 2.7 million in part from from Peter Thiel. The other thing I would say is, if you know about Bilderberg, that's great. If you know about Trilateral, that's great. Skull and Bones, all, all interesting stuff. But the Mount Pelerin Society is the one that people, especially right-wingers, don't know about. And that's the one that has been most effective on them. It was a meeting in uh, Switzerland in 1947 with William Buckley, uh, European feudal aristocrats. Uh, von Hayek, I think, was there. Von Mises was represented by others. Milton Friedman was certainly there. The Chicago School is kind of a dumbed-down uh, business school version of this this Austrian stuff. That Mount Pelerin Society, P-E-L-E-R-I-N, that is the thing that has created this consensus that you hear, like the patriot community or the people who care about liberty. This is all crackpot Austrian ideology, absolutely alien from American history, has no, no positive contribution, has no success stories anywhere in the world. What we have is all the more ironic because we have the American system of political economy. That's Benjamin Franklin, Alexander Hamilton, Henry Clay, uh, Henry Carey, Abraham Lincoln, Justin Morrill, uh, the Republican protective tariff, the second half of the 19th century, uh, the, the, the prairie populists of the 1890s attacking gold against gold, not wanting to be uh, crucified on the cross of gold of, of a deflationary uh, money system. And then that blossoms and into the New Deal, a lot of which comes from the populists, the, great, the, the new frontier in the great society. And that's what we need. That's what the bankers actually fear, that they do not subsidize. They don't give me $2.7 million to put that out. They give it to Ron Paul to spew this Austrian garbage. And I think that's got to be crystal clear. Uh, I have a question regarding Romney, the lean towards I'm afraid Romney. this is going to have to be the last one because I got to go. Okay, well, yeah, I'll try to go quickly. Um, you you talked in your radio show that, uh, this week that the policy of the Federal Reserve might might be um, affected by them leaning towards Romney. You mentioned they may not do QE. Sure. Yeah, sure. They've said that they won't. I mean, so as far as we can see, they're not doing it. Here's the idea. Right. You've got uh, obviously because there's this depression and because the banks are all choked with toxic derivatives. Right. We've got one point five quadrillion, two quadrillion derivatives, maybe more in the U.S. and, and uh, European banking systems in particular. Uh, we we have now this stagnation. Right. We have um, the, the Federal Reserve saying that unemployment here will be well above eight percent through the end of the year. Now, that's very that's the worst possible news for Obama. Any Federal Reserve uh, leadership, any, you know, Bernanke, Greenspan, Volcker, whoever it is, they could engineer a, a short upturn. In other words, they could always print more money, right, 
that quant- quantitative easing three would be one version of it. Even within their, you know, pro-banker ideology, they could say if we want Obama to get reelected, we can create a momentary euphoria by flooding the banking system with cheap cash. And they could do that. And that's, you know, you'd be starting to do that now and things would improve superficially in the very short run. And they said they're not going to do that. They will not do quantitative easing three. They will essentially do nothing. They will do this thing called Operation Twist, which is an attempt to lower interest rates on long-term 30-year bonds, which has, I think, on, on the whole, not that much effect. So they're not doing what they could do to get Obama reelected. And that's another very telling sign that the, that the, uh, the, the banking establishment wants to dump Obama and bring in Romney, and they have a very specific purpose in doing this. They would say, Obama has done fine. He's organized color revolutions. The one in Iran failed. The one in Russia failed. But the one in Tunisia and in uh, Egypt, those have succeeded. The one in Libya kicked over into a war. Well, we won the war. Now, however, they're up against it because now you have Syria and you have Russia looking at you, right? And what will Putin do? He's in the Middle East right now today. So this deters them. And then they say, well, if we've gone as far as we can with the color revolutions, it may be time to switch back to the neocon confrontation line. And this obviously very dangerous, very foolhardy thing to do. But you're dealing with a ruling class. You're dealing with a crazed ruling class who have been driven insane by depression, by the fact that their capital structures, their precious derivatives are everywhere collapsing right or will collapse unless every effort of society is devoted to to maintaining derivatives which is you have to you know force people to do it so i think they've uh they've they've decided to run the other thing is domestically they could say obama has given us stasis in other words he's given us what can we say the peace of the graveyard in other words, there's no anti-war movement there's no 9-11 truth movement the labor movement flared up, but it, it can be defeated. It has been defeated in some states. It's still fighting in other states and so forth. But they would say, this is not enough. We want drastic genocidal austerity of the Ron Paul type. That's what the ruling class wants. Ron Paul articulates what the bankers really want, at least a lot of them. They certainly want the, the, the results. If, if they, they might have quibbles about the method. But they want that austerity, and they say, Obama, you are too slow. Obama says to them, guys, I'm giving you the death of the social safety net through the death of a thousand cuts. I am administering small daily doses of poison to the New Deal, New Frontier, and Great Society reforms. And the bankers say, that's too slow. We don't want the death of a thousand cuts that lasts days and days and days, weeks and weeks. We want the chainsaw. We want a direct frontal attack to, you know, tear the social safety net limb from limb in 30 seconds. Right? We want it done yesterday. And that's where Obama has a hard time because he's got to bring along these groups, right? The labor and women and all the constituency groups of the Democratic Party. But at that point, Romney can say, I don't care about any of those groups. I have the Mormons and I have the neocons. And that's going to be my regime. And devil take the, the rest, right? Woe betide 
the people who are not part of my favorite groups, essentially Wall Street, Mormons, and, uh, and neocons. So. Well, that's great. It, it really, this really helps out our show. It's still relatively great, new. Great, I wouldn't say. I would say terrible. I mean, I mean, not that. I mean that you, you're helping out our show. No, austerity is definitely good to talk good. to you guys. I hope that was enough. But I, I, uh, I, I see I've gone way over, so I've got to, I've got to move on. Good uh, to no talk doubt. to you. Uh, it's uh, it's been a cornucopia of information. We really appreciate it. Uh, thank you so much, Doctor Tarpley, for all that you. Let me just let me just uh, in, invite people. Go to tarpley.net. Tarpley.net. There you find my books now. If you want to understand these things, the best thing is to start with Surviving the Cataclysm, Your Guide Through the Worst Financial Crisis in Human History. That's number one. That You've talked at the beginning. It's the 20th anniversary next month. July 2012 is the 20th anniversary of my landmark book, George H.W. Bush, The Unauthorized Biography, July 1992. That's the book that has Prescott Bush, the grandfather of the most recent president, Bush, financing Hitler, helping Hitler take power. And that, I think, reminds you, if I say, oh, you know, they're coming with fascist austerity, and you say, oh, no, they wouldn't do that. That's exactly who they are. In other words, this banking establishment is precisely people like this. You can make a case, uh, and I do make a case, in my upcoming book on Pearl Harbor, that the U.S. banking establishment is, in fact, the largest group of fascists and Nazis that have never been disrupted. In other words, that have been in power continuously, right? Obviously not always getting what they wanted, but um, trying to go in that direction. Uh, there was never a moment of denazification for Wall Street as there was, say, in, you know, in, in Berlin or Frankfurt or Rome, right? There was never such a, a, a moment, or Japan, right? They were never occupied. They were never disrupted. So here you have a continuity. The other thing is I, I talked about Obama, right? Two years, uh, four years ago, I put out two books, uh, Barack H. Obama, uh, no, I'm sorry, o Obama, the, the postmodern coup, the making of a Manchurian candidate. That title has been plagiarized by two or three different books. Uh, that was before the Pennsylvania primary 2008, warning against Obama. And then a larger study, Barack H. Obama, the unauthorized biography that came out in August of 2008, before the Democratic Convention, warning them exactly about what's happening now. He will be a new Carter. If you put him in, it'll be an explosion of, of uh, euphoria, uh, messianic, utopian rhetoric, no substance, then a complete downer. And in that, that hangover, you're going to get something like a new Reagan, you know, raised to the 10th power, 10 times worse. Uh, and that seems to be where we're headed now. So I told you so. So why not pick up on these things? So surviving the cataclysm. George H.W. Bush, The Unauthorized Biography, two, two books on, um, on the uh, Obama issue, and then 9-11 uh, Synthetic Terror, Made in USA, the fifth edition. Uh, we may be on the verge of a false flag operation in terms of uh, Syria. I, I, I believe they're, they're trying them now continuously. Uh, we may have a Gulf of Tonkin going with this uh, Turkish airplane supposedly shot down by Syria, over Syria, but uh, Turkey still pressing forward on a course of provocation. So uh, read some of those books. You want to support my work, buy and read 
some of those books and, and I, you'll be much stronger positioned to understand what's going on. Read my books and you will not be duped by somebody of the caliber of Ron Paul. It just can't be done. That's excellent advice for us. And once again, audience, that is tarpley.net, T-A-R-P-L-E-Y dot net. Amazing to finally get to talk to Dr. Webster Tarpley for the first time in God knows when since the conference calls. So um, I've had the chance to kind of join in on the calls that you guys have been having each Monday. And very intriguing, a little bit intimidating. I guess I, I feel a little bit intimidated every time I talk to this guy, but it's so inform it's so informative that, mm -hmm. you know, who cares, you know? It just seems to me like this guy has a wealth of knowledge. I'm really happy to meet him for the first time. I've let, I've even had the chance to hear him on the Alex Jones show. Um, I've heard him on his own podcast from World Crisis Radio. He seems just like a human encyclopedia, especially on geopolitics, which is one of my favorite points to cover as well. Um, I think um, I look forward to hearing from him again in future podcasts and future shows that he runs himself. So tell me, Mike, how did you get a chance to meet this guy? What happened? Um, tell me oh. the beginnings. Okay. Well, I think um, it actually started with, in our first podcast, I, I explained how I watched a documentary about 9-11 and that kind of opened me up into a lot of the topics that we talk about, you know, geopolitics and eugenics and so on and so on. And it was probably that same week I watched that documentary, Loose Change, by the way. It's a very popular 9-11 documentary. You can watch for free on YouTube. But in, in any case, so I watched that documentary, and then I went to a coffee shop in Brooklyn, New York, where they're doing a newspaper called the New York Megaphone. And it's uh, – it was kind of an alternative media newspaper that covered, well, frankly, alternative is issues, 9-11 being one of them. And it also just happened to be the time that Webster Tarpley had finished his book, 9-11 Synthetic Terror, uh, made in the USA. And so I reviewed that book for the newspaper. And uh, yeah, so I got to interview him. I talked to him probably all together together several hours over a course of two or three interviews but on telephone uh, for the record I never met the guy in person um, I've been in Korea as, as you yourself we, we've been in Korea for the past few years but in any case we kept in touch after that and I probably got to know him better since I came to Korea I think he appreciates having contacts in other countries obviously if you listen to his radio show he's got people from all over the world coming on his show all the time yeah. But uh yeah, I just um I I think it was right around 2008. I still had his email. I hadn't really talked to him since the megaphone days that which has since gone under to, from from my understanding. And um but in in any case, um you, you know, these alternative media projects they're difficult to keep going, which is why I'm really happy with the last defense 2012. But in any case, I got back in touch with him around 2008. I started writing an article that was never published, but it was about the election of Obama. Obviously, that was the big thing in 2008, and I I had been listening to Webster talk on, on the Alex Jones show, among other media, about how he did not trust Obama. He he wrote two books on Obama, actually. I think you mentioned them in, in our introduction, the Obama the Postmodern Coup and Obama the Manchurian Candidate. Mm -hmm. Or no, I think that's the same. I think that's all the same title. The second book was 
the unauthorized the unauthorized biography yeah. biography of Obama. Yes. In any case, he did two books on Obama, so obviously he had a lot to say about that. And my article kind of kind of uh, mirrored or reflected that. And he edited that article for me. It was never published, but I went on to do other articles that were published that he helped me with. So, yeah, we've been we've been doing as as you know, and and you've joined conference call on Mondays, Sundays for them, Mondays for us because of the time difference. And yeah, he's he's like the brain. He's like uh, <laughs> the living uh, encyclopedia for all that is geopolitics. Um, you know, he he's always talking. He he doesn't just tell you what's going on. He tells you, like he can go back like fifty years and pull up like like for example the what happened in Germany before World War II. First there was inflation where they were printing money like crazy. And I think in our previous episode you gave a story about a guy who had to order a drink and he had to. He had to drink it as fast as he could so that he could get the next drink before the price went up or right, something. Right. <laughs> so, yeah, that that was about Weimar Germany. And then after Weimar Germany, this guy, Bruning, came in. I think this was the last guy before Hitler. And he was actually like a Ron Paul type, which, uh, you know, it's a whole other topic. Ron Paul has been really popular for the last few years. And he basically deflated the currency and – this started, you know, cutting spending, austerity, frankly, and, and again, you talked about austerity in our previous episode, and um, and that obviously didn't work because we all know what happened after that. Hitler took over, and and you know the rest is history. But um, yeah, he's the uh, living encyclopedia of all this geopolitics. He's very a uh, very handy source to have so i'm really i'm really happy that we both get to talk to him now and and use his information yeah absolutely yeah like i said I, there were some times i wanted to get some questions in and i was just like ah i just have to sit and listen it's like listening to you know the wealth of information speak you know, living mm-hmm. incarnate but um yeah it was great I'm, i really appreciate you having him on and um uh mm-hmm. getting that set up so thanks again mm mm-hmm. Uh, no problem. Let, let's get into the general themes of what he was talking about. Um, he said it was a global depression. It's not just Greece. It's not just the USA. It's not just uh, Iceland or uh, Ireland or anywhere. It's a global depression. And he, I, I talked about derivatives, financial derivatives. I don't want to go over it again because we just listened to him talk about it. Um, CDOs and CDSs, credit default swaps collateralized debt obligations, gambling, Wall Street gambling for short. Um, I think I gave a big story in the previous podcast about a woman who owned a bar and she ended up selling her unemployed alcoholics IOUs on Wall Street in a big scam. And it's, you know, I don't want to go over it all again, but right, right. Uh, definitely listen to the previous podcast if you need a. Yeah, I wanted to interject something real quick. I'm sorry. Yep. <laughs> um, you know, I'd been listening to Max Kaiser for a while, you know, on press TV. Um, Max Kaiser on the edge, you know, listening to him um, on RT.com. You know, he's been telling everyone, you know, pretty much exactly what a derivative is. It's a bet. It's a gamble. That's all people really need to know. Ever since 2002, they've been in the marketplace and they've created several quadrillion dollars worth of debt. It creates like a black hole. It's like opening a portal to the financial neither world of, of the planet. 
And it's designed, it's specifically designed to collapse everything. It's deregulated fiscal madness. That's basically what it's all about. So yeah. So um, uh, we'll we'll go into that in a later podcast, but definitely continue. I'm sorry. Oh, no, that's that's great. We need to get as many sources as we, as we can. Max Kaiser is great. I, he's really funny, actually. He's excellent. I love listening to him. Mm-hmm. So uh, anyway, I, I just got thinking, you mentioned 2002. I think it was, yeah, it was uh, Bill Clinton, if I remember correctly, that he ended the Glass-Steagall Act. I don't remember if I got it. No, 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 you're right, you're right. Uh, Glass-Steagall Act was repealed in 1999 by Bill Clinton. And, yeah, that's where all the chaos started to happen. Yeah, that basically separated commercial banks and saving banks, which is like a conflict of interest for the bankers. I, I think, and I, again, like we'd have to go over it again, nail it down, but in off the top of my head, I think it's like you can't uh, be controlling an asset and bet on it too. It was- I don't know. And from what I remember, I think it was um, can't have a commercial bank and an investment bank at the same time, right? You know, right. Operating that's, as one bank, and that's, that's been completely stuff. been overridden. But yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, and also I think it was Ronald Reagan around 1982 officially made derivatives legal again, but they they went into a period of limbo where people weren't weren't quite sure if they were legal or not until about 1999 when. Clinton opened the floodgates by by ending the Glass-Steagall Act, and, and again we reviewed all of this in our previous podcast. So I guess we don't, you know, I advise our listeners to go back to the previous podcast for that. But um, Webster obviously talked a lot about derivatives in this show as well. So anyway, let's get into this uh, Syriza program. Syriza lost for again. We just heard Webster talk about Syriza as a political group. In Greece, they're the anti-austerity party, meaning they don't want to cut spending. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, they don't want to cut spending on social welfare. They probably would like to end some. They they would like to end the wars and keep Greek troops out of out of the NATO wars. That's a good thing. But they want they don't want to cut spending when it comes to the social safety net, which is like, you know, um, medical. Um, uh, I, I don't I don't know what it's called over there. I want to say Medicare. It's probably called something different over there. But they don't want to cut into their social welfare, their education and housing and medicine. And that's totally reasonable. And people totally. need to live. So um, yeah. said you pulled up a five-point program. I've, I found the 40-point program. Maybe we can just go over everything together. Yeah, there's a website. It's uh, www.greesolidarity.org. And um, it talks about the Syriza five-point plan in an article that I think we had posted on The Last Defense not too long ago. It's called, Cyprus Lays Out Five Points of Coalition Talks, Greek Elections. It's on the website, uh, com. if I'm pronouncing this correct. I hope I am. If not, you can type it in, E-K-A-T-H-I-M-E-R-I-N-I.com. So... In this article, it mentions the five points. And the first point is the immediate cancellation of all impending measures that will impoverish Greeks further, such as cuts to pensions and salaries. In my honest opinion, I think that should cancel the derivatives that have been plaguing them that are leading to the cuts 
and pensions and salaries because basically the people are having to forward their money from public spending on these two things, pensions and salaries and other things, Medicare, like you were talking about, into <laughs> the financial bailouts. So it's liquidating all of their assets and all that liquidity is going towards paying for the so-called debt that they never really owned to begin with, if I'm saying that. The derivatives. Yeah, absolutely. And what he was talking about also, uh, Webster Tarpley, uh, Dr. Tarpley was talking about how those are Anglo -Amer those are Anglo banks and American banks, uh, British banks and American banks to be specific, that are controlling much of the derivatives market. So the Greeks are paying for countries that they have, you know, uh, how, how would you say it? Um, they're paying for, well, Wall Street and London gambling, I guess. They, yep. they invested in these uh, derivatives, and they were, they were bad bets. These, these banks, J.P. Morgan, Goldman Sachs, Citibank, Wells Fargo, and others, um, it's always the same names you hear about them on uh, Bloomberg TV and stuff. And, and they won't say derivatives. They always say complex financial instruments. But the, these banks, they – they gambled and, and they lost, and they knew they they knew they were going to lose because they're, these derivatives are toxic and they're not, you know, worth anything. It's like paper based on paper only, and only not even. Absolutely, and they have no assets backing the derivatives. Okay, quick derivatives one hundred and one. It's a bet. If I say, Mike, hey, um, I bet you it's going to rain tomorrow, and you say, no, no way, it's not going to rain tomorrow. It's totally going to be sunny, and then we start to have a spat out. So you're like, okay, I want it on paper. <laughs> so you sign the paper, and you're like, I'll see you tomorrow when I get to claim my five bucks. And I'm like, no, I'm going to claim my five bucks. And then at the end, it snows. <laughs> and we're like, oh, well, I guess we have Meanwhile, to pay someone else the traded. five bucks. Yep. <laughs> you know? and, you know, that's a derivative. It's a bet. It's a, a contract, which is not based on an asset. Well, it's it's based on an asset, but, but you might it's not, not own backed asset. by an asset. Mm -hmm. So it's a bet on a particular asset, where the asset's going to go, what it's going to do within the next particular amount of time, based on the time limit. But there's really no limit to the derivative and what yeah. the derivative can do. It's simply a contract and a bet, and it says whoever gets the bet or if you can achieve whatever you need in this derivative in a certain period of time, then you get the money. If you don't, you're pretty much SOL. And I, and I would add, you don't have to own the asset. You, you can bet on somebody on somebody else's uh, uh, on something you don't own. Like like it's it's like if I bought insurance on your house and then I burned it down, you're not going to collect my insurance money. You, you didn't buy insurance. Absolutely. But I'm going to collect it, and I don't own your house. I burned it down, <laughs> but <laughs> you know. <laughs> Straight mafia style. So, Kind of madness. In the words of uh, who's that big uh, financer? Uh, uh, I can't can't come to my head. They, okay, well I'll give the quote. There, financial weapons of mass destruction. Warren Buffett. He's the one. Who oh, the guy with the ice cream cone. That's the one that yeah. Alex Jones loves. I mean, loves to yeah. hate. Uh, Always has an ice cream cone in his ice cream cone in his hand. How how <laughs> can you distrust a man with an ice cream cone? But at least me, he had little... one moment of honesty. He said there were weapons of financial mass destruction. Yeah. 
Absolutely. Mm, derivative is definitely that. Okay, let's move on quickly. Uh, let's go to the second point. The immediate cancellation of all impending measures that undermine fundamental workers' rights, such as the abolition of collective labor agreements. So these are labor parties. Um, I would assume that it is a very good idea to keep your labor party so that way people can control how much money they're earning, what happens to them while they're working, so that they're not exploited by these large companies and conglomerates. What do you think on that one? Yeah, it reminds me, Webster's, I, I believe he said this in our interview, um, the the unions, as well, some of them are corrupt, but in any case, they are they are something necessary, the, the labor parties, you know, you need that to fight for your, you know, basic wages and, um, you know, various health cares and other things. That that you want, you you need to have that organized labor. And, and I understand some people are like, oh well, unions are corrupted. Well, they they get corrupt. That that's a separate story. That's a separate issue. The point is, you need the general for for you know workers' rights. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's protection because these corporations get away with murder, kind of like what they're doing right now. You know, you have Greek people jumping out of their houses. You have Greek people committing suicide because there's just really no 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 solidarity even when you're working you know you are at the mercy of whatever these corporations say and do and what these banks say and do and you know what the european union says you should do and what you know britain says you should do and then what america says you could do it's just like where is the self-sufficiency at this point mm -hmm. who is controlling this country that is an extremely important point so let's move on. I want to cover two of them. We'll go ahead and talk about the next two, three and four. The immediate abolition of a law granting MPs immunity from prosecution, reform of the electoral law, and a general overhaul of the political system. Point four, an investigation into Greek banks and the immediate publication of the audit performed on the Greek banking sector by BlackRock. So number three is extremely important because this allows them to go after the people who have been causing the financial crisis. Um, I think that without this particular point, I think number three to me is the most important point, one of the most important points, because they need to reform the political system. This is going to help establish more Greek solidarity. This is going to help establish Greece as not per se a regional power, but it's going to give them more control and more say over what happens with them because they can weed out the people who have been causing them all these problems. I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, strike strike fear into them. They're gangsters. You know, throw them in jail. <laughs> maybe, maybe it'll send a message to the ones that don't get caught. You know, you better stop now while you're ahead. Right. And you were mentioning earlier that Iceland was doing the same thing, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, they, they threw some of the bankers in jails. Uh, Webster seems to think that that wasn't as, how do you say, a uh, rosy story as I made it out to be in the previous episode. He said, he, he made a mention that they lost about 50% of the value of their currency. Um, but Webster's a very little bit, how do you say, he's, he's, he's very critical. But in, in any case, they did throw some bankers in jail, and I think that's always a good thing. Yeah, it's um, a start, you know. Yeah, better than nothing for sure. Right. Because I think that, you know, if there is a system in place, you know, according to this five-point plan, 
where there can be a sense of justice. At least it preserves the hope of the people. You know, if there is no hope, what can you do? What That is when you have revolutions like that. Iceland, I, in my opinion, I don't think they had that grand of like, what would you say, like um, internal um, problems. They didn't have that big of an issue like Greece is, riding in the streets. People. The, the one thing to note is they only have fifty thousand people. It's a, it's a small, very small country, like a small city, even. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. That that's a huge factor, definitely the the population. But also, if the people don't trust the government because the government's not doing anything to go after the criminals, which these people are, call them what they are, they're criminals. Yeah. And that's what they do. They do criminal stuff, just like any other criminal, but. They get the press on their side, which makes them look as if they are, you know, not as bad as they really are. You know, like Mr. Warren Buffett with his ice cream cone again. Is it a waffle <laughs> cone or is it a sugar cone? I can't really tell. <laughs> Maybe it's both. He's got, he's probably got the dibs on all of them. He's uh, probably got the best ingredients in that ice cream cone. <laughs> well, isn't doesn't he own Dairy Queen too? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> He probably to, gets, like, the special without all the GMOs in it. Right. I used to go there when I was a kid, and there was one ride down the main road of my um, city. Oh, God, I feel horrible now for doing that. Going <laughs> over to Briars. Screw you, Warren Buffett, okay? <laughs> <laughs> Anyways. Um, yeah, the last point. This is an important point as well. Setting up an international auditing committee to investigate the causes of Greeks' public deficit with a moratorium on all debt servicing until the findings of the audit are published. So, auditing committee, this will help with the bureaucracy of these um, uh, financial derivatives. It's going to help weed out the problems within the financial system of Greece. I think this is a swell idea. You know, it will help to kind of sort out your finances. Everyone needs to sort out their finances. Like, in your case, Mike, Mm -hmm. what happens if you don't sort out your finances? Uh, problems happen, headaches. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, I try to keep things simple. I invest in gold and silver, but that's for that's probably for another day. But <laughs> right, uh, <laughs> yeah, you got to keep it organized. That's for sure. Yeah, absolutely. I know. In the past, when I wasn't necessarily the brightest block when it came, the brightest kid on the block when it came to finances. I was just happy that I had money in my account and that payday was right around the corner. So I would just go on the ramen diet whenever I needed to, like, wait for the next paycheck. These days I can't do that anymore. I have to, you know, have to sort out my finances. That's the only way that things are going to change. And yeah, and have, eat real food. <laughs> yeah, real food. Not, oh, God, I have not eaten ramen in months, man. I can't even remember the last pot of ramen I had. I am so happy about that. You can get the good stuff in Korea, not not the grocery stores, but yeah. if you go to a restaurant, maybe. Yeah, screw that. Go on Fukuoka. <laughs> if I go to ramen, I'm, if I go to get ramen, go on to the best place, the yeah. capital, ramen capital of the world, Fukuoka. <laughs> okay. So, yeah, those are the five points. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just wanted to talk a little bit about those. Those are going to be extremely important. In my personal opinion, though, I'm really kind of – I'm kind of upset that Syriza Party didn't get it. New Democracy Party won yeah. the election, and I think that that's just a crock. You know, it's not, it's not a real election at all. I think they stole it. Yeah, I think they stole it too. Webster uh, kind of alluded to that. I, I mentioned our friend um, 
from stopimperialism.com. Eric Dreitzer. Uh, Eric Dreitzer mentioned that they called the election and there was still 18 percent of the votes uncounted. Now, keep in mind, the election was only won by about two or three percent. So 18 percent left over. Now, if it's a if it's a landslide election, OK, just call it. But two or three percent difference between the this first and second place party. That's kind of a suspicious <laughs> call. It's ultra suspicious, yeah. man. Like that's yeah. not even democracy. That's not democracy at play. Who? Who stops a video game after eight, you know, you know, twenty yeah. percent of it, one fifth of it's left to go? You know, you want to get to yeah. the ending. That's what you do. It's you one know, thing who, if it's a blowout, but that's not a blowout at all. That's, you know, it's a race to the finish. <laughs> it's a rigged election. That's what that is. I don't yeah. know. Keep going. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off. Oh no, I was just uh, I found that suspicious. And, and oh yeah, there is another thing actually, and and this is just my own speculation. Um, I noticed uh, Webster was interviewing that guy, Michael – God, I don't want to butcher his name – Ciotinus or something. He says it in the interview, so you know, if you go back and listen to him talking. Michael from Greece said that they did not allow polling for the two weeks before the election. Now, think about the logic of that. Wouldn't it be um, beneficial to any vote fraud to not do, allow polling – before the election, because think about it, if you're going to steal an election or if you're trying to steal an election and you're polling, say, the day or two before the election and one party is, you know, blowing away the other party um, and then the, the election comes and all of a sudden they end up not the, – the results end up being flipped. That's kind of obviously like vote fraud, right? Yeah, absolutely. But if you hide, if you hide those statistics leading up to the election – then nobody really knows what's going on, so it's a lot easier to steal the election. And and this is just my own speculation. Webster didn't say that or anybody else, but I, I kind of noticed that and I got thinking about it. Like, why would you not show polling, you know, in the two weeks before? And and it got me thinking. Like, that really opens up the door for vote fraud. Yeah, absolutely. Um, do you know what systems of um, do you know what voting systems they used in the uh. Greek elections? Hopefully not Diebold. Right, <laughs> you right. Remember the Diebold voting machines, the uh, HBO documentary, Hacking Democracy. You can probably find that on YouTube as well. Right. For our listeners. It's all about electronic voting machines in America. Um, I, I say any electronic voting is wrong. Um, that's that's my opinion. I think it has to be paper, paper trail, you know, counted on the spot with both with all the parties watching. I think if it's any other way then it's not going to work. Anything and, digital is basically thin air, I swear. Yeah. Digital, like and, derivatives, those are digital money. Those are forms of digital money. You know, the Diebold machines, those are digital votes. You know, anything digital can't be regulated and it can't be controlled. Uh, it can actually be controlled to the point where it's no longer speaking the truth on anything. It's just you can make a number whatever you want to on a digital system. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally open. Any any digital machine, even if it's not diebold, it probably can't be trusted. But it, Webster made the point, though, and uh, this is almost a given. Like they're going to steal the election um, unless it was a real blowout. And again, without the polling in the, for a few weeks before, how can anybody know? You know how people were feeling before the election, but. 
they they were going to steal it, but he made the point that you know this party went from five to thirty percent, roughly five. I think it was like four percent before the election to like right around twenty six, twenty seven percent of of the uh, political parties in Greece. Mm-hmm. So that's that's like what six times or at least four times the the popularity that Syriza grew during the course of this election. So that's that's a victory in itself, and now they got this program out, and we're talking about it over here in Korea, and hopefully America can pick it up, and it's a very great program. Um, I, maybe I want to talk a minute about Webster's program, which is very similar to the one we just discussed. Right. Um, I'll just really quick summarize these. It's, it's also a five-point program. Um, let me, I'll just get right into it. Uh, Measures to reduce and minimize speculation, that derivatives of speculation, gambling, um, tax or ban derivatives, ban credit default swaps, and collateralized, collateralized uh, debt. I'm probably butchering this. Credit default swaps is one. That's when you're like buying insurance in somebody else's house and – collateralized debt obligations is another one and I can't explain that one as well but these are the two most how do I say infamous types of derivatives probably all of them should be banned but if anything should be banned it should be these two and if you tax the others that'll you know that'll that'll go a long way to uh stopping them because right now there's no tax they don't pay any tax at all and um here's a second point nationalize the Federal Reserve. That's right. The Federal Reserve is a private bank. That's a whole other topic again. Most nations, including Korea and probably Greece under its current state, the mm-hmm. the, the private the, – the banks are not nationalized. They're private banks. They're a consortium of private banks, Right. and they give the money to whoever they want. They don't um, – they don't give the money to schools and hospitals and tangible production. They just – well, they give it to whoever they want. That's all I really need to know. Uh, I think Alex Jones was talking on his show today that like something like 70% of the money that's paid to the Federal Reserve doesn't actually go back into the U.S. economy. It just goes off to private companies and foreign banks and companies. Right. And especially overseas, it's just basically yeah. siphoning all of the wealth outside. You know, a lot of them go back to the Anglo-American banks. Uh, I like to call them that. For the simple reason that they've basically planted themselves, they've metastasized all the way over from, you know, central London, you know, financial district all the way over to Wall Street and so on and so on throughout the years, you know, mm-hmm. companies like J.P. Morgan, Goldman Sachs, well, Goldman Sachs, um, what would you say about that one? That's probably the top of the, that's probably the top group of gangsters. <laughs> that's the one, I hear that name more than any other. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, like, um. Wow, <laughs> so much to talk about. I guess we could um, – we'll definitely have to get back on the financial news um, within a podcast or two, you know, at least yeah, just to I touch up on it. Three and four and five here I want to quick go over. Um, number three is actually – he could, probably could have condensed this into number two. It says measures to reindustrialize and build infrastructure, develop science drivers, create jobs, and restore a high-wage economy. He's basically saying – 
And again, this goes back to number two. He probably could have made it all on the one point. Make the make the newly nationalized bank spend its money or lend its money to real production, real, you know, health care, education, building roads, building um you know, plumbing. I almost got blown up by a steam pipe in New York City in 2007. So they, they need to replace some things. Uh, yeah, that's that's a whole other story. It actually killed somebody too. Luckily, not me. Jeez. But um, let's see. Number four: measures to defend and expand a social safety net. Again, this you could kind of condense all these together. But you know, the social safety net is basically your uh, in the U.S., that would be Medicaid, Medicare. Um, there's other programs specific to, like, education and um, single mothers, food stamps. And I, I understand the libertarian argument that, like, ah, people are abusing these programs. But, um, frankly, people are depending on them for to, to live, to survive. They, they could die if you took them away. So I, I say I agree with the libertarian that they can be abused, and we don't want a lot. We don't want a lot of people on these programs. But you got to do. You got to restore the economy first. You can't just take away the programs and let people die. You have to get the economy going so people don't need the program, and then you can get rid of it. Right, you right. Can't see it the other way around. And so, um, you know yeah, that's that, that like, would be. Oh, sorry, sorry. <laughs> but uh, and, and there's just one more here. Um, measures to relaunch the world economy. Again, it's just, it's you know falls into the same thing. Measures to uh, nationalize the world banks and make them do productive things. So yeah, it's I guess that's it. Um, what, what do you think of those five points? They're very similar to the Syriza plan, right? Yeah, pretty similar. It's just basically you know working for reform. I think this could be applied to any country on the planet that needs you know some sense of economic reform that's going to help put the people first. You know. There is this small oligarchy of people, these financiers, who have created this economic system, an economic model throughout the planet. And what they do is they just siphon the money all to themselves, all of the money that people need to sustain uh, a national economy goes mm -hmm. directly to paying off the debt from the derivatives that have been created by private f uh, financiers. And this is the problem that we're seeing around the world. A lot of the people that are protesting are saying that this debt is not theirs. It's not theirs, and, they yep. have to, and the rest of the world has to acknowledge that it's not theirs and that they do have a legitimate complaint. They do have a legitimate um, you know, reason for protesting. Mm -hmm. so, yeah, they don't owe the money. Right. They don't owe the money. And all of the assets, all of the assets are getting liquidated to private banks. Greece, at this particular point... You know, in order to pay off the so-called debt that they owe, they're having a lot of their national parks. They're having a lot of their islands. You know, mm -hmm. they're getting bought up by people in China, for instance. One of the ports that they were using um, was getting bought by a Chinese company. And then they're getting bought by banks in order to kind of like repossess their assets. So they're using the derivatives to – Like a sense, yeah, it's a, it's a bank. It's essentially a heist. And um, they're using the derivatives to create fake wealth. And then when they have to pay for it, you know, the, the companies get money from the people through social bailouts. 
economic bailouts. And then on top of that, they put the blame on the people, make the people feel small, make the governments feel small, and then after that, liquidate all of their assets in order to pay for the national debt that Greece owes or that Italy owes or that Spain owes or that Ireland owes or that the United States owes. You know, like the guy said in the BBC um, video that I had seen a long time ago, you know, banks rule the world. Goldman Sachs rules the world. Mm-hmm. That was like a week ago, right? I think. No, this was a while ago. But um, Oh, uh, there was another new one from a week ago. But very similar, same idea. Yeah, yeah. And people are just going to keep saying it and saying it until something gets done about it. But see, what they're doing these days, I remember um, uh, Max Kaiser was talking about this with Stacey Herbert. He was saying that, or she was saying actually that, they're using a method of enforcement, not any feasible plans, to take care of the debt. But they're saying, if you don't pay for the debt, we're going to do this. If you don't pay for the debt, we will go in and put more of our, um, you know, um, what are they called? You know, technocrats. (laughs) What's that? Police state. (laughs) Yeah, it's a police state. You know, it's bullying. It's a bullying force. And these private banks, you know, these mega banks that control a lot of the assets, these six mega banks that control a lot of the assets around the world, they're using private companies and they're using private um, security firms to enforce these policies. There's nothing else backing them. The military backs all of the, a lot of the financial, um, how would I say, the financial collateral. It backs the reason why people listen to these banks. Think about it. And I'm just going off on a tangent. I guess I'm ranting a little bit. No, but, there's a lot of great points in there. They, I, I would add, they they control the media, so they use that to to put. You were just saying they put the blame on the people, and they they own the media, so they put the blame on the people, and and it's hard to tell people, no, you don't know this money, you know. You, exactly. You don't really... Exactly. You, you, that's a great point. The thing is, they use and they finance the um, the media. As a form of psychological warfare, this is kind of like psychological abuse. Someone telling you, Yo, well, you're not worth anything. You look stupid in that outfit or something like that. And, um, you know, over time, people are going to believe that. And that's what we have. We have this, you know, worldwide psychological abuse going on through the corporate media who are trying to put all the blame on the people and the governments who are not responsible for these um, financial debts or these financial debt obligations. And then you have... The military. With the United States, the only thing that is keeping the United States from collapsing is their military power. Nothing else is holding it up. Nothing else is propping up that country. And there's a, there's a specific reason for that. It's because most of our money. I remember reading an article today. It says 53% of all the taxes we pay go towards war. Mm. And so why do we sit here and we have to say, oh, well, you know... We're paying too much taxes. And then the businesses are like, oh, we need to do tax cuts and stuff like that. But the businesses are capitalizing on all of the taxes, or primarily most of the taxes. And then the banks are capitalizing on the taxes because those go towards the bailouts. And then on top of that, the people have to listen. Otherwise, you know, people in batons and black uniforms come and bash them on the head, knock them out, 
tell him that, you know, you're going to jail for voicing your opinion when it's actually what's going on here is a corporate takeover of the society, of the country. So, sorry, I, before I rant anymore, I, that's just what I'm saying. It's military you know, might. What you're saying got me thinking about our episode. I think it was our episode two. Yes. Or maybe episode one. I can't remember which one. The theme was like uh, the collapse the and how they would manage that. And I talked about how Americans were buying guns and the U.S government was buying ammunition and right. you talked about and you posted articles about how there were these companies like Boston Dynamics were making you know robots that wouldn't have to take orders from anybody right i mean or they wouldn't have to i guess you could say they couldn't disobey orders rather it would be more accurate um they can take orders from anybody but they're not going to disobey them and that's key because a lot of the military they say is waking up to all this mayhem and they're not going to follow along which is great but when it comes to machines i mean they're going to do what they're programmed to do you know absolutely and you know boston dynamics it was commissioned by darpa yeah to create a, a new system of um militarized you know assault vehicles these are all anthropomorphic or in the form of some um, biomimicry um you know design machines we have mm -hmm. Smart drones working as swarms, as small insects. You have yeah. drones that take on the, sh the shape of humans, of dogs. They take on the shape of other types of bugs. Uh, some work like centipedes, and some work as reconnaissance drones, some work as attack drones, some work as, um, how would you say, um, you know, some work as supplier drones. Like mm -hmm. the big dog drone was uh, originally meant to be a supplier drone to carry several you know, you know, carry a lot of weight uh, mm -hmm. up, you know, rocky and hilly terrains. Anyways, yeah. that's, that's beside the point. Case in point is that they're using private companies for the national government to enforce these laws. Mm -hmm. And the, they're enforcing yeah. it all around the world, which you're seeing in a lot of these wars in Afghanistan and in Iraq and in, you know, what's probably going to happen in Syria and Iran. Mm -hmm. These are wars where a falling superpower is doing its best to push forward an agenda mm. by changing the geopolitical structure of the world mm. to maintain power and to keep the status quo at the expense of human lives and at the expense of, you know, the economy. Mm. And I don't think they're going to be able to keep up with this any longer. Mm. Yeah. And, I would add, like, Webster doesn't – he doesn't really get into the police state stuff in his radio show and his books. But I think it's important that we do because it's one thing to say, well, we need this five-point program and and then everything will get better. And in, a, in an ideal world where the media wasn't controlled and people paid attention, there would be this five-point program. And it would probably work just the way he said it would. But unfortunately, we don't live in that ideal world. We live in a world where – most people don't know about derivatives, let alone, you know, nationalizing banks and, um, you know, doing these things that would reverse the world global depression. But so we have to prepare for the worst is what I'm saying. Like hope for the best, plan for the best. I mean, well, plan for the worst, hope for the best is what I'm saying. 
So it is important to talk about the police state issues, which is why I think it's great to listen to everybody. I listen to Alex Jones and Webster Tarpley and whoever else I have time for. Right. And I try to make my own opinions on top of that, which is why I think that the last defense 2012 is great because we, I think we cover really the full spectrum of topics. We're not just geopolitics. We're not just police state. We're not just eugenics. We cover, we try to cover everything, which is ambitious, but I think you have to do it that way, you know? Right. I mean, from, from one thing and the, and another thing, you mentioned a very great point. We have to cover everything because they're all related. Mm-hmm. Economics is going to influence geopolitics. Geopolitics is going to influence, you know, the economy as well as the domestic political um, atmosphere. And then on top of that, eugenics plays into a big issue in social health care. And then eugenics also plays into, you know, say, for instance, dumbing people to- down. <laughs> Yeah, dumbing people down, and that, that's yeah. the reason why a lot of people don't do anything. You got fluoride in the water crystallizing people's pineal glands, and that doesn't really do anything to help with decision-making, you know, or doesn't help yeah. decision-making skills at all. So, yeah, wow, okay. Yeah, yeah we so- got a full-spectrum show, which is great because, um, like you said, we have to, you know. I mean, still listen to Webster, listen to – all these people we talk about are great sources. Max Kaiser, uh, Alex Jones, Webster Tarpley, Eric Dreitzer, and you know I'm sure there will be many others that we'll be talking about. But try try to expand. I mean, it's common sense, really. But in any case, it's good to remember because some people only get into the geopolitics. They only get into um, you know one of these other topics, but they don't. You said it best. They're all related. They all affect each other. Right. Yeah. Um, it's it's an extremely important. Um, I guess my final comment I'll make, you know, we're doing this for the simple fact that we have a lot of things we've researched, we have a lot of things to say, and we have to get it out there. And, you know, that's really all it takes. It takes for, you know, one person, one or two people, or several people, to know what's going on in the world, and to disseminate that information. And once that happens, you can spark a trend that, you know, can change the trajectory of our history, you know? And this Mm -hmm. is extremely important because people always say, oh, we can't do anything about it. Oh, I don't feel like anything's going to change. It's because we're still playing into the same systems that have been Mm -hmm. perpetuating, you know, our problems for so long. We get tired of it. And so that's when we have a voice and an opinion. We speak our mind, and that wakes people up, and that gets them off the system. Mm-hmm. And so it's not just with us. It's not just going to stop with us. It's not just the last offense. It's not just me or you. It's everyone. Start your own blog. Start your own podcast. Do whatever you can. Rant. Rant like I'm ranting right now. <laughs> mm-hmm. And get your message out there. Because that's the only way things are going to change. And I swear to you, that's all it takes. So do you have any other points you want to make, uh, Mike, before we um, wrap this up? Um, It's all perception. It feels like like most people aren't awake, and and that might even be true. But only – I think they say only 5% of of the colonists defeated the British Empire during the U.S. um, Revolutionary War. 
with Great Britain. So, and I think we have more than 5%. We probably have 30% that are relatively awake uh, to like the corruption that's going on and probably a smaller portion of that that really, really understand it. But we, we have, I think we're doing better than our, than the colonists were doing when they went against the British Empire. So, you know, you just, you just got to try to break away from that misperception that that we're alone or we're the minority and maybe we are the minority. I don't, I'm sometimes I wonder because I look at the comments on, on various articles and even in the mainstream websites like yahoo.com and, and it seems like more and more people are waking up these days. So it's a very good sign. It's not all pessimistic. It's not, it's not, you know, don't be, no, nobody should be depressed. Just, just fight harder and know that there's a lot of people out there who who probably think the same way. We're the minority. We're not the minority. You know, we're, I think we're almost the majority, if not already. And uh, I guess that's about it. So, uh, yeah, I, th- I thought that was a great interview, and, and I hope we have more great guests on. I think you said you had some people in mind. Um, you want to give any previews of who we might be seeing next? Uh, I did have one person in mind, a uh, person who's from Cairo, um, Hopefully, if we can get in contact with him, you know, we can talk about the um, elections in Cairo as well. Well, elections in Egypt and um, get some more other get some other people. Uh, Former mercenary is also in mind. Also, some, you know, diplomats. If we can get some diplomats on, that'd be really awesome. But I just got to make the phone calls. Uh, So that's it. Mm-hmm. Thanks, folks, for listening. Thank you again, Dr. Tarpley, wherever you are now, for uh, joining us on here. It really means a lot to us. And, you know, yep. best of luck to you. And this is The Last Defense signing off. And our motto is speak your mind, voice your opinion, keep your sanity. That's the law of the land for us. Anyways, this is Hanno Navi and Michael Belowski signing out. Okay. Thank you for listening. Night.